When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? struggling to find restful sleep or plagued by a restless inability to focus it's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living welcome to amen university founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert dr daniel amen dr amen alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions from debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry our courses are meticulously crafted to target at these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. And so for me, the issue really isn't about whether you should expect a lot or expect a little. It's really being about strategic in the way that you're expecting things. Are you expecting the sorts of things that, that the two of you, that this particular relationship can actually deliver? If so, then you should double down and expect those things and hope for greatness. And if you're expecting things that are implausible, you know, then you're probably ill-advised to do so. Hello, and welcome to The Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Eli Finkel on the show. Eli is a professor at Northwestern University where he has appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management. In his role as director of Northwestern's Relationships and Motivation Lab, or RAM Lab for short, he has published more than 160 scientific papers and is a guest essayist for the New York Times. The Economist declared him, quote, one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. His latest book is called The All or Nothing Marriage. In this episode, I talk to Eli Finkel about how the best marriages work. The institution of marriage has evolved throughout the decades. People used to tie the knot for socioeconomic purposes, but nowadays, we seek to fulfill our higher need for self-actualization in relationships. According to Eli, higher expectations are not necessarily bad for marriages if people can use them strategically. Eli also shares love hacks we can implement to improve our relationships with our partners. This episode was a long time coming. I've been wanting to chat with Eli for a long time. I've been a long-time admirer of his research. I find his work incredibly nuanced and incredibly relevant, and so I really am excited to present this episode to you today. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Eli Finkel. Dr. Eli Finkel, it is an honor to have you on the Psychology Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We've wanted to talk for a while. Finally, it's finally the moment is here. It's true. It's true. It arrived. 
even going back when uh, this uh, piece by David Brooks came out talking about your book in positive terms. He talked about your book in positive terms, but he kind of hated more on my boy, Abraham Maslow, and uh, kind of attributing uh, this whole idea of self-esteem and movement uh, and uh, self-expression uh, got run amok to, to him, which it was a not not a good attribution. Yeah, that was a that was sort of an odd experience for me. His uh, his piece came out the the day the book was published, which is pretty great to get a whole David Brooks column in the New York Times on the the pub date for your book. And yeah, he he was complimentary about the book, but definitely I felt like I was blindsided, or I was I was sort of a drive by victim in a battle that he had yet with Abraham Maslow. And I was excited because not that many days passed before you uh, you took him to task in the pages of Scientific American. Uh, well, yeah. And then I had him on my podcast too, and we talked about it. Interesting. So why do these ideas about self-expression, why are they not necessarily bad in the realm of romantic relationships? I found the, I, I guess you could say the, the conservative critique of the marrying for personal fulfillment shift, right? That was a cultural shift. It wasn't that we always married for the personal fulfillment of the spouses. And I think people raised some good concerns about that. Like that marriage is hard and it won't always be a pleasure. And so how can you simultaneously have marital commitment and you know a long-term orientation till death do us part while simultaneously saying, you know, it's going to be great. I, uh, I hope it's pleasurable. And, you know, if it's not pleasurable, then I'm not going to stick with it. And um, I actually spent a while trying to, to think about where I fell on that. And it, it was really this distinction between two different ways of living a, a sort of self-oriented life. And again, you've talked in your book, in, especially in Transcend, about whether that's the right way to conceptualize it. But, but Maslow, for sure, was talking about self-actualization in a real sense focusing on bringing forth the self. And that's quite a different emphasis, quite a different perspective than you see from people who are talking about self-esteem and making sure that you're never having to make any compromises. And if you're not living, you know, if you're not living according to your true self, you have to leave the marriage, right? There, there's, I think, a couple ways of thinking about this stuff. And so it took me a while to figure out how I thought about it. And, and it's pretty much the distinction between pleasure and self-esteem on one side and meaning and self-expression on the other. And insofar as we're focusing on meaning and self-expression, and insofar as we think that one of the ways that we can live a meaningful, fulfilling, authentic life is by building and sustaining long-term committed relationships, the tension between you know, wanting to live in accord with yourself and also wanting to be committed to your marriage goes away. Wow, that's so interesting. My personal philosophy is... Uh is that sort of like whatever works for two people in a relationship or 10 people in a relationship, there's such a thing as polyamory. It kind of whatever works for people, to me, that's my model of self-actualization. And I don't try to judge or say that there is one correct way. Because for some people, maybe just a relationship that's just full of lots of great sex is meaningful. Maybe that's maybe that pleasure is meaningful for them. I just don't like to like tell people how they should uh, live their life or um, or uh, say there's one best way. But there is science, and that is true. <laughs> You've spent your whole career studying 
probabilities. You've spent your whole career studying, well, what tends to tends to work? And I want to hear all about all that. But I also really am interested in that individual differences piece because that is my my field is personality psychology. So how much do you, you know, put in these moderator variables in your in your studies and, and stuff and look to see, oh well, actually those introverts, they blew off the whole trend. Well we certainly do. I, I, I'm I'm certainly interested in, you know, when and for whom are certain approaches to marriage uh, especially beneficial. So for example, there's some interesting research out there now about you brought up polyamory and non-monogamy, which is something that I, I deal with directly in the book. And there are certain people, um, individual differences, people higher in sociosexuality. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with the I term, do. but I know about Yeah, that. you you for sure. Like the you know, comfort with casual sex. And it looks like perhaps not surprisingly, uh, people who are higher in sociosexuality really benefit from opening up their relationship. So I, I'm I'm entirely with you that um, there are these individual differences. In terms of, of whether there's a more versus a less healthy way to think about this, like, you know, are you sort of in it for, for the pleasure of it, knowing full well that, that you know, 60-year marriages don't tend to be unmitigated pleasure for every moment, right? There'll be some challenges there um, versus sort of more self-actualization, meaning-based approaches. For me, uh, I, I entirely agree with you about the individual differences there. The, the challenge for me and really the, the sort of the, the crux of the book is about calibrating your expectations to what you think the relationship can deliver. That is, who are you and who am I and who are we and are the things I'm looking for from this relationship likely to be things that, that given our strengths, we're going to be able to deliver. And so I, I entirely agree with you that, that there's no rule that says we have to ask for self-actualization from our marriage. In fact, a fair bit of the time um, in the book, I'm talking about why it's a high-risk choice uh, to do it. But I also talk about why those of us who are seeking that from our marriage, from our primary romantic partner, let's say, and able to achieve it, like have a relationship that's actually able to deliver that for the two of us, are almost certainly achieving a level of fulfillment in their marriage that was out of reach in an era before Maslow, in an era before people were even trying to achieve that sort of, of connection in their relationship. Yeah, you talk about Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did I mention it? Yeah. Sometimes I get confused between Maslow and Lincoln. Did I say the wrong name? No, you said Maslow now, but I'm 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 just bringing that up because you talked about before Maslow, and my mind went to the sort of pragmatic love sort of view that you talk about in that historical period. So, could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard for us today, I think, to get our heads back into a pre-industrial mindset to to get ourselves back into a world where. People regularly died in childbirth, uh, giving uh, giving uh, birth, and sickness and plagues and droughts. Like people regularly died of this stuff, and and so you know I find it useful to think of an example. So Abraham Lincoln was born a couple hundred years ago, eighteen oh nine, and he was born into a, a one room. A uh, dirt floor log cabin. Uh, he had an older uh, sister, and uh, then another sibling came along, but but that one died. And when Abraham was nine, his mom died, and when he was still a teenager, his only remaining sibling died, giving birth to a stillborn kid. And you know, I find that interesting because I think U.S. history is interesting, and I think Abraham Lincoln is is interesting. But really, I find that useful for our purposes because it helps to illustrate just how precarious life was. And so, I, I guess I would ask. You and me, all of us, like if you lived in a world where life was fragile at that level, you didn't sort of stroll by the target to pick up all the food that you needed, 
literally your marriage was a primary means of achieving things like food, clothing, shelter, and so forth. How much would you really prioritize like this feels like a like a, a match that, you know, I feel it in my fingertips when we kiss or, um, you know, you complete me, right? The way that we talk these days would have been like comedically ridiculous in, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And so it was really, you know, this transition from this earlier, more pragmatic era when life was fragile and the relationship was just about two fundamental things, things that were too fundamental, lower down Maslow's hierarchy, that we weren't really as focused on the individual fulfillment of the spouses and certainly not focusing on like trying to achieve a sense of self-actualization through the relationship. Yes, yes. Are you familiar with my uh, revised hierarchy of needs yeah. by any chance? Yeah, well, I, I, the, the one you lay out in Transcend as well, right? Yeah, I, I think that that framework is it might be a good launching pad for this discussion because you do need your uh, basic needs met to a certain degree in your life or else you, you'll sink. Too much water will come in. And, and certainly if you're in a relationship where you're constantly, you know, there's violence in the relationship where there's constant discord, no coherence, that's not good <laughs> uh, in any relationship. However, and I think the point you're making, which I completely agree with, um, is that that's not enough in, in a relationship, in a romantic relationship. You eventually have to open up that sail of the sailboat metaphor and to grow. And you have to move somewhere knowing there's going to be uncertainty. And the grow together model of romantic relationships is what David Brooks, um, what David Brooks wrote. He criticized the grow together model in, in, in more of what he sees as transcendence, which is not what I think is transcendence, which is complete self-sacrifice. Um, and he's sort of like defending, you know, complete self-sacrifice over growing together. And the, all the psychological literature I've seen shows that complete self-sacrifice never ends well. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, I mean, come on. But it's, yeah, yeah, I understand that having this like romantic, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet ideal is, but no, that's, that doesn't end well. You know, if you completely sacrifice your whole sense of self and your whole, your own needs to grow, your growth needs, your, not your security needs, but you sacrifice your growth needs. To me, that's a recipe for disaster. Well, certainly it didn't go all that well for Romeo and Juliet either. Right. Yeah. You brought in the work on unmitigated communion, for example. And I, and one of the things that I like is, you know, this like in Maslow, but I think your book really helped to bring it to the fore, at least for me, was this idea of like the vertical integration of the needs, right? That is, it's not really like, a, well, you achieve the the, you know, safety thing and then cross that off and then you go up to the love and belonging thing and you cross that off it's it's that um right. you're you're simultaneously meeting these i guess higher and lower needs again yours is a is not necessarily a hierarchical um framework because you talk about the sailboat and so forth but but yeah it's it's the the simultaneous integration of those sorts of things and and one of the things that that i like to address in in the book is you're a personality researcher first and foremost and i'm a relationships researcher first and foremost and, and i think you're focusing on you know the integrated life and one of the things that really in, interests me from that perspective is well one of the ways that we lead an integrative life is through our close relationships but one person doesn't have to be the source of fulfillment for all of those sorts of things and and so what is it again playing to strengths will i need to do a full vertical integration of of my um meslovian needs including transcendence through the marriage well 
no, we don't have to. Um, it is a high risk choice to, to put all the eggs in the basket like that. But again, it's sort of neat that it's available to us now. It's sort of neat that that some of us talk this way and think this way. And, and even as it puts a lot of pressure on this one relationship. You know, this takes us to the question of, you know, what's happening with marriage today in America. Is the news good or bad? And you say that it's both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the question really is about, you know, what are the functions of expectations? Mm. And, you know, it's easy to lament them. It's easy to say, well, if we didn't have such high expectations, we wouldn't be so disappointed. That's totally true, right? That is that, that expectations serve an evaluative function. And if my marriage is providing, I don't know, 20 units of goodness and I'm expecting 30, I'll be disappointed. But if I'm expecting 10, I'll be happy. Um, that's completely true. And so the logic that says we should be asking less is, is entirely valid. What it ignores is that expectations also essentially functions as goals, right? That is, they have a motivational function. And so when we say like, these are the things I really wanna get from the marriage and I want to have high expectations for a deep level of emotional connection, that it's not just about how I'm gonna evaluate things once the, the information is there, it's about what I'm going to try to seek, mm. right? Not just about evaluating how the outcomes are right now. It, it, it's those, those of us who are saying, you know, you shouldn't have high expectations are ignoring the fact that expectations are motivating, that they get us to try to pursue a level of connection that we might not have tried to pursue before. Um, and so, yes, we might end up disappointed today with a level of marital well-being that would have been totally fine for our grandparents. But the fact that we're shooting for a higher level of connection than was uh, than people back then were shooting for has has the upside of some of us are actually getting it. Yeah, you say the best marriages are getting better. Yes. Again, the, the the I'm a little beyond the data here. Unfortunately, there hasn't been the hundred year longitudinal study of the best marriages. But but Maslow, I, I think, is basically totally correct that surely, you know, you need to have enough food to eat and not be freezing. But if you're talking about things like self-actualization or really talking about transcendence or richness in your life, this this profound sense of purpose and meaning in your life, you know, it's fulfilling those sorts of needs, those self-actualization sorts of needs that are especially important. And so as we are looking to higher levels of need fulfillment, at least in the Maslowian sense, those of us who are able to achieve fulfillment of those needs are achieving a level of fulfillment from the marriage that was unavailable to people who weren't even trying to fulfill those needs. So it's it's simultaneously harder, right? Nobody, certainly you, you wouldn't say that it's easy to reach self-actualization and transcendence, but these are worthy goals. And those of us who are able to set those goals and at least sometimes achieve them, achieve a, a level of life fulfillment and happiness that is profound. Wow. So it's not that we're asking more of our marriage, but we're asking for different things than people asked for in the past out of their marriages. And we and then and then expectations mess us up if if we expect Disney movie, you know. Disney movie. Yeah, yeah. People who are saying and, and again, I, it wasn't until I got into the research that I, I really fully understood this. You know, we're saying, oh, we're asking more and more and more. People used to ask for survival. <laughs> right? they, ask, they used to ask for like literally food, right? Like how are we going to make sure that there's enough food for our family to eat? Now, I understand in some way we're still asking those things of our marriage, but not in the very literal way that people did 200 years ago. And so for us to say we're asking more, 
It's like, yeah, if you ignore all the other stuff, we're asking more about the, the, the things that were higher up Maslow's hierarchy, the deeper sort of emotional connection and especially these sorts of self-actualization things. It's true. Um, so expectations obviously play a big role in all of this. And society, obviously, and, and media can influence our expectations. So are you saying like in Lincoln's time, like in a newspaper, you know, in stories, like their stories, they expected less out of romantic. So like the Disney of Lincoln's time was like, oh, you, you satisfy my basic needs. Yeah. I'm in love. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? Is that was like the expectation of the society then as well, like in the media and stuff? You know, it's funny because, you know, we don't focus that much on this part of Abraham Lincoln's mythos, but yeah, he, he was famous for like walking around with an ax. I mean, very literally, he was like a handy guy to have around and he was very strong. And, and in his, I think when he was first running, I forget if it was for Congress or for the presidency, but there was a whole thing about how like this guy can really like split a piece of wood in a perfect way. So, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, was there like awkward reality TV about Jebediah and, and home building or, or like farming, you know, probably not, but yes, yes. The cultural norm was that these practical sorts of skills were the ones that really made sense in a partner, uh, being a good provider, um, being somebody who's, who's competent around the home to make sure that, that life is, livable and practical and that you, you know, you don't have to worry about the fact that Target wasn't invented yet. Those were the things that were appealing. It's not that people were indifferent to whether they loved their spouse. We've all read Jane Austen. She was early 1800s. And sure, people wanted to love their spouse. They preferred to have a hot sex life. But those things as reason for marriage, that, that would have been absurd. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you, even though I don't, uh, I didn't live during that time period. And then it's the same, you know, the expectations of the 50s weren't, weren't much more romantic, were they? Well, they were romantic. I, I would say that by then you're, you're romantic, right? So it's really starting around the 1850s. Yeah, women should be in the kitchen. Well, That's romantic. That's <laughs> not romantic. Well, you know, look, it's not romantic by our, our sensibility. By our standards, by our standards. It's not like you can't tell a romance story about how she's tending the nest and he's earning the bread and they come home and they have their moment and they love their kids. Like I, I do think that, that for a lot of people, uh, they were very happy with that. And certainly the cultural narrative was that they had little, you know, each little suburban home, they had carved out their little slice of heaven. And I think people thought like, this is ideal and romantic. Um, and the reason why I, I was saying that in some sense, uh, you know, I do think that era uh, prized romance um, in marriage is that rather than focusing on the, the bottom part of Maslow's needs, these really practical, basic sorts of needs, there was a big emphasis on love and really like cherishing. Um, the, the weird part is like you were supposed to love and cherish your spouse, but but never had people lived such different lives. Like the men and women just had these radically gendered existences. I mean, that, that wasn't the case before when everybody worked around the home. Nobody kissed somebody goodbye to go to the office in 1800, or not many people did. And these days, of course, now there's often a, a two breadwinner sort of situation. But in that period, like he had his sphere of life and she had hers. And somehow yet they were supposed to have this like deep emotional connection. And it was it was pretty hard to bridge across the divide, even though certainly that was the that was the cultural narrative, that that's the way it was supposed to go. Yeah, so I think it's time to, to explicitly put a name on a lot of what we're talking about. You'd call it the all or nothing theory of marriage. Yeah. That's the technical 
psychological literature <laughs> jargon. Yeah. Uh, now, how how has your theory been um, received with among psychologists, among reviewer number two? What does reviewer number two think of the all or nothing theory of marriage? Well, reviewer number two is a bastard. I think it's gone okay. Uh, like I haven't gotten any serious pushback. In fact, I think there are reasonable critiques to offer, uh, especially, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how uh, in some ways I'm a little beyond the data, right? We don't have the perfect data to say the top 10% of couples, like how happy were they in 1900 versus 2000. But no, I mean, I, I think that that relationship scientists, that is especially social psychologists and related fields that, that study intimate relationships, use data to study this stuff, I think I've appreciated that I brought in a, a historical, more sociological, economic sort of perspective on these things. And, and to the degree that there have been empirical tests thus far in the literature, they've been very supportive. That is, you know, for example, uh, Jim McNulty, who's a, a relationship scientist at the University of Florida, has a terrific study that looks at whether high expectations are are good or bad. That is, whether uh, the time that you're uh, newlywed, so people married about three months on average, they report on what sorts of expectations they're bringing or standards they're bringing to their relationship. And it turns out that having really high uh, standards for the relationship are beneficial among those people who have good communication skills and handle conflict well. That is, their marriage just stays strong over time. They almost like stay happy like newlyweds for the first, at least the first several years of the marriage. But those high expectations, those same exact expectations that are so beneficial among people who have good communication skills and so forth are actually harmful. Right. So to the degree that you don't have particularly good expectation skills, then you're actually much worse off if you have high expectations rather than low expectations of the marriage. And, you know, it's broadly consistent with the idea. And, and this is the like related to the all or nothing theory, which is that we've arrived at a moment where we're looking to things like love, esteem, self-actualization, like never before from our marriage, that those are the things we're seeking, like, like we never did in the past. And those of us who are able to stick the landing on that stuff have a level of connection, fulfillment in the marriage that was out of reach when people weren't even trying for it. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever. But more and more of us are falling short because those those sorts of expectations, are, it's pretty hard to deliver on those. Uh, and so a marriage that might have been fine for our grandparents disappoints us today. Yes, I appreciate that that uh, that nuance. But I wanted to double click on something you said about how, uh, well, the you, your, your full humility, there is uh, full evidence longitudinally um, about the changes in expectations. But I want to point something out about you, and that's that, folks, Eli is a legend in our field. Like, if you go to his Google Scholar page, he's got an H-index that is humongous. He's got a humongous H-index. It's 77. He's got 25,000 citations. You've done a lot of research. You're underselling yourself (laughs) really big time to to just say, well, uh, we don't have evidence. You have so much evidence you've accumulated. Maybe not that specific, that specific point. I get it. I get it. But look, you you have so much evidence you have on romantic relationships, and you've done a lot of work. I remember uh, your one of your colleagues, Eastwick, uh, Paul W. Eastwick. Uh, I remember when I was in grad school, he came and gave a talk at Yale, and I remember that was my introduction to your work was through him. So I know you've done a lot with Paul, right? Yeah. No, he's a legend. He he was a, a student of mine, but that was one of those. Wonderful cases where the the student is the mentor. I learned a ton from Paul, and we, we're you know we're still collaborating together. Yeah, that stuff is is a little bit separate from what I was focusing on in the book. But but we were interested in questions like, you know, if people 
say, like, I really want a certain set of characteristics in a partner. I really want somebody who's funny or who's kind or who's charming. Do they, like, are they right, right? Like, to what degree do we have introspective accuracy, insight into what it is that we desire in a partner? And it turns out that all of us like partners who are hot rather than ugly or ambitious rather than lazy. Like, there are qualities that are appealing. But if I think I uniquely care about somebody who's funny or somebody who's pretty or something like that, am I right? The answer seems to be no. Like that's among the sort of that's among the, the work that, that Paul and I have been looking at is like we have these deep seated feelings about ourselves, intuitions that we know what we want in a partner. And we have very little actual insight in general. People have very little actual insight into what their preferences really are. Absolutely. You have this great paper on mate evaluation theory that came out in Psychological Review, which is along those lines. Without getting too technical and nerdy, can you explain two different sources of, of variance that you found are important to tease apart from each other? Yeah, I'm delighted that you're asking about this. I mean, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. So. You are on top of it. I don't even think that paper's officially published yet. Again, Paul Eastwick was the lead author on this, and we, we collaborated with Samantha Joel on it. So... For a long time now, people have, um, Dave Kenny in particular, a name that I'm sure you're familiar with in his social relations model, they've talked about questions like, you know, if Jeff has a crush on Jenny, why is that? And it turns out that there's like three statistically and conceptually independent reasons why that might be. It might be Jeff has a crush on all the girls. We're assuming a, a heterosexual case here. Jeff has a crush on all the girls. Could be all the boys have a crush on Jenny. So, right, the first one is it's something about Jeff. The second is it's something about Jenny. And then there's this third thing, which is what we think we're talking about, but may not be, which is the relationship that is above and beyond Jeff's tendency to like dig the ladies and above and beyond the like dude's tendency to dig Jenny. Is there something special about the two of them together? And, you know, that makes him especially interested in her relative to the other women and relative to how other men think about her. And so one of the things that we've done in our paper is we actually split that third thing, what we call, what Dave Kenny calls the relationship effect, right? This is what we think of as, you know, chemistry. There's something unique about the two of us above and beyond who you are and who I am. And historically, we, that was just one thing. The relationship part was just one thing special between the two of us. But there's two versions of it. One is something that I think we could imagine gears aligning, right? Something stable about Scott and something stable about Jasmine. And you like, well, look at that. Oh, perfect. Right. Or look at that. Ah, not working. Right. That's something that's that's about you and about her. Or if you wanted to think about it, somebody who's high in attachment avoidance with somebody who's dispositionally nurturing. Right. Like that's the gear alignment. Or part. anxious. Research shows that pairing stays together a long time. An, ang an avoidant man with an anxious woman. That's kind of a bummer because it's hard to imagine that they're that happy in that dynamic. But it's serving some function for them. It's actually interesting in terms of your you know, vertical integration of the Maslowian perspectives. It's probably ser serving one of what Maslow would think of as lower level stability sorts of functions rather than like expansive sorts of functions. But anyway, so, so that's one way of thinking about it. But there's a totally different way of thinking about it, which is that what's happening in the relationship is irreducible to you and to me, that there's nothing that we could know in advance about like who Scott is and who Jasmine is that would make us know whether you are going to be more versus less compatible, that it is something that is that emerges in the context of the relationship. And, and one of the things that, that I'm working on right now that I'm especially excited about, it's a follow-up to that uh, made evaluation theory paper, is this idea that relationships have their own cultures in a very literal sense. We have our own in-jokes, we have our own languages, all sorts of things that would be meaningless or at least difficult to fully understand from the outside. And it's that 
that it's that thing, that part of relationship variance. If the first is the gear alignment and the second is, no, we built a culture so that the jokes that we tell aren't about you versus me. They're about the experiences we've had together and how we've made sense of them as a pair that tends to serve as a particularly powerful glue to hold us together, make us feel connected, give us this sense of joy and pleasure together. You know, now we have this special code language that only the two of us can use when one of us is feeling amorous and trying to figure out if sexy time is going to happen. These things aren't really about him and her or him and him or whatever. It's really about the culture that has emerged in the relationship itself. So that's one of the things we're really excited about these days. I'm excited by this paper too. Um, I have uh, I've long said on Twitter that these kind of things emerge from um, uh, from prolonged interactions between people that the hotness, one or 10, hot or not, can change substantially your perceptions of that person right. um, based on actually talking to them over time. Paul uh, Eastwick actually has that finding. Sorry to inter- interject there, but, but he and uh, a student of his named Lucy Hunt, um, they have cool studies that look at the amount of consensus that people have. Like, is this person hot? Is that right. hot? Is this other person hot? And it turns out that if you like don't know the people, then there's pretty good consensus on who's hot or who's not. Like, we can agree that Brad Pitt is hot and that some other guy might not be hot. But as you get to know people better and you say, like, now five people rate how hot somebody is, now there's very little consensus about it. It looks like literally ratings of things like how physically attractive somebody is are heavily dependent on your experiences with that person. Absolutely. I wrote an article for The Greater Good, yeah, summarizing some of that research. It's called, Is Kindness Physically Attractive? If anyone wants to read my article. <laughs> In the abstract to your paper, you say, we address puzzle a puzzle by suggesting that repeated interaction causes the target-specific lens to expand. What is it about academic language that's so unsexy? Like, meat evaluation theory. Like, that's not a, that doesn't make you want to have sex with that theory. <laughs> I think, well, oh boy, yeah, I, I've never tried, but huh, I'm intrigued now. You might be better qualified to judge this than I am. You have a, like a great ability to to you know, speak with the the general public about sophisticated ideas, including in Transcend. I remember one time there was this like disc jockey in like one of those shock jocks in the Chicago area named Jonathan Brandmeier, Johnny B. That's like 20 years ago or something. But I remember he he was excited by something that I had done 15, 20 years ago, like when I first became a professor. And he had me on his show. And I think he thought I had something to plug, like something I was trying to sell. And so he was at the end of the session, like we had a good time. Like we're just sort of, you know, shooting the shit. And at the end, he said, well, the new article is called, and he read it, and it was something technical. And then it had a long subtitle that was just as technical. And I think he said something like, what the hell? Like, if you're trying to sell something, like, this is not the way to do it. And and it really drove home the point that you're making is that the way that we communicate amongst other eggheads, I mean, in fairness to us, there are subtle distinctions that we need to get across to each other, but it's almost like we're competing to be as esoteric as possible. I got to read the sentence again. Repeated interaction causes the target-specific lens to expand. So, so again, in regular English, the idea is that something about just the two of us, we can call it chemistry, right? So early on, it's like, is the person hot or is the person not? That's something about this particular target, this particular person we're evaluating. And that tends to be pretty substantial if we don't really know somebody. As we get to know somebody better, then it's really about us. It's really about the unique relationship that you and I have built over time. That basically trounces the like, is there something about you or something about me types of effects that you see in those opening moments. So really, it's a story about how 
you know, relationships really just take on their own path and their own trajectory and that they are irreducible to the people involved and that they, to a large extent, are unpredictable in advance. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that clarification. Well, I want to kind of end here today with some hacks, love hacks. In your book, you do uh, have non-academic jargon, which is great. Yeah, you discuss eight love hacks. You would never dare put such a word in an academic paper, right? I never (laughs) did. Can I give a little context for why I think love hacks have real value? So, so we, we've talked um, uh, in the course of the conversation, this, this uh, two-day uh, conversation we've had, we, we talked about this all-or-nothing theory that, that I'm talking about. And, and to some degree, like, it's pretty complicated and involves historical change, but it really boils down to a supply and demand way of thinking. It's, it's like, I don't want to scold people that they should be asking less of their marriage because asking more has these important motivational elements. It excites us. It makes us want to pursue a level of connection that has real value. And so for me, the issue really isn't about whether you should expect a lot or expect a little. It's really being about strategic in the way that you're expecting things. Are you expecting the sorts of things that that the two of you, that this particular relationship can actually deliver? If so, then you should double down and expect those things and hope for greatness. And if you're expecting things that are implausible, you know, then you're probably ill-advised to do so. And so for me, the question is, as we go through various aspects of the relationship, the emotional intimacy, the sexual intimacy, the financial support, whatever it is, to what degree are our expectations appropriate in light of what the relationship itself can deliver? So in that sense, it's supply and demand. And, And so for that reason, I make the two obvious sort of suggestions. One is you can improve your relationship by investing more right? Like trying to make the relationship add up to exceed your expectations by certain sorts of date nights. I talk extensively about how to communicate more effectively, how to play more effectively together and so forth. The second option is you can try to ask for less, right? You can put your expectations in alignment with what is actually plausible given the relationship itself. And and I talk very concretely about ways that we might be able to ask less of our relationship particularly in domains where we don't think the relationship is going to be able to deliver. And, and I get into controversial stuff, including consensual non-monogamy. But you asked about the, lo- the love hack. This is my like, there is kind of a third option, right? So yes, you can increase the supply, that is, invest more in the relationship so it can deliver. You can reduce demand, that is, ask less of the relationship so that you, you're not holding on to these unmet expectations. But there is a third possibility that that's not going to make a great relationship out of a terrible relationship. But a really good option for cases where we don't have a huge amount of time or bandwidth or emotional resources right now to do the really intensive communication stuff. We've got a, maybe there's a baby at home. Maybe there's a cancer diagnosis. Maybe there's an incredibly intensive period at work. And we're not ready to lower our expectations. Are there things we can do to get us through those sorts of fallow periods that can keep the relationship strong? And this is where I talk about love hacks. And love hacks have these two properties. The first is they are simple. That is, they don't require much time or energy. And the second is you can do them by them by yourself. They don't actually require you coordinating with your partner. Um, and so this is an option for you can't really increase the supply. You can't really invest more right now. You're not ready to reduce the demand or, or reduce expectations. Are there quick and dirty things you can do to try to keep things strong with the resources that you have available? Is that a love hack? Did you just give me a love hack? There are eight love hacks that I offer in in the book, but that was the context in which I think it's useful gotcha. for people to think about when love hacks are especially important. Okay. So do you want to give two two love hacks then? And 
let them read the book? Yeah. The opening quote in the book is from Marcel Proust, who says that, that mystery is not about traveling to new places, but about looking with new eyes. And this is the logic of the love hack. Are there things that we can do to, to tilt our vantage point, to tilt our perspective, to look with new eyes at the relationship? And luckily, our field has done a really good job of this stuff. So one of the, the more straightforward examples is, you know, our partner shows up late to something. We have a lot of control about how we make sense of that, right? And this is, again, the, the clunky language that scholars use is positive and negative attributional biases and so forth. But it's really what sort of explanation? Why was he late? Is it because he's kind of a jerk who doesn't respect me? Well, okay, you're welcome to draw that conclusion. Your relationship will get worse if you do. Or is it he's been, he's been distracted lately because he's working on important stuff, but I know that he loves me and he didn't mean to hurt me. You can draw that conclusion. And, and again, this is independent of what's actually true, but this is the story that we tell ourselves. And truly, the story that we tell ourselves is a huge amount of how well the relationship is going to go. So that, that's one option that's a positive attribution bias, generous explanations for your partner's behavior. Another one is one that we, we developed here uh, at, at Northwestern. We, um, this is the idea of uh, adopting a generous third-party perspective about conflict. And what we did is we recruited 120 married couples from the Chicago area. We asked all of them over the course of two years, seven times over the course of two years, to write about the biggest conflict in their relationship. And then in the second year, we randomly assigned half of them to try to think, not only write about that conflict, which everything, everybody's been doing, but now write about it also from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for everybody. This could be a parent, this could be a friend, whoever it is that wants you guys to succeed. And then what we did is we had people do that for seven minutes, three times in the course of the second year of the relationship. So, so three times over the year, so it's 21 minutes of writing. And what we found is that people who adopted this generous third-party perspective were more satisfied over time, even had a hotter relationship over time, felt more trusting and intimate with their marriage, with their partner over time. And this is another idea of a love hack, right? This is how can we reorient our thinking about the reality? The conflict is the same. And in fact, our manipulation didn't affect the frequency with which people reported conflict or how serious the conflict was, how upset they were by it. It didn't affect those things. What it affected is the extent to which the conflicts that were just going to exist in their relationship anyway were internalized in a harmful way for the relationship versus processed in a way that was more beneficial. So that second one, if the first one was generous explanations for your partner's negative behavior or positive attributions, this one is a sort of a, a third party reappraisal of conflict, a third party perspective of conflict. Well, thanks for teasing people with a, with a couple of love hacks if they want more. They can uh, buy your book. And your book is called The All or Nothing Marriage, right? The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. And the way to live a happy life is to purchase a few hundred of those um, each listener. So enjoy. Well, I'm so glad we finally wrapped this one up. Yeah. <laughs> We've been trying to do this for a while, and then we had some technical difficulties yesterday. Yeah. Thank you so much for the, all the great work you've contributed to the field of psychology. I mean, you've really you've published a lot of very important papers in our field. Thanks for saying that. And thank you uh, for having me. And thanks all the work uh, for all the work you do, not only in the field, but for uh, giving psychology away to the, to the broader public. It's a huge service. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.